Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I am Cindy Howes, here with Lizzie No. Hey, Cindy. How's it going, Lizzie? It's going great. I'm really excited about this episode, and I'm always excited to chat with you, my work wife. Wow. What a glorious day for us on Basic Folk. Yes, that's right, dear listener. The one and only Sarah DeRose is on the podcast today. And before we get into it, I want to encourage you to sign up for our what mailing list? Newsletter. The newsletter. The mailing list is king. It reigns supreme. It's the best way to stay in touch with your favorite Lil Folk Pod. You can sign up for our newsletter at the link in show notes, or you can go to basicfolk.com and there is a button there you can click. We're also on social media. At Basic Folk Pod, Twitter. No, we're not on Twitter. What's wrong with me? Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. TikTok. I have to say, our TikTok channel is very fun. The videos that we have from various interviews are so cute, and they give you a little peek inside the real vibe that we cultivate here on Basic Folk. Right. Our vibe, we talk about it in this episode with Sarah DeRose. Our vibe is Lila's TMZ. Lila's TMZ. And for those of you that weren't a little girl in the 90s, Lila's stands for love you like a sis. Mm -hmm. What's going on, Lizzie? Anything fun? Oh, not much. I just released a career-defining album Mm. about a week ago. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's just what's going on with me. Great. What else is happening? Um, (laughs) Not much else, Cindy. That's really my whole life. Um, What's going on with you? Well, I have been listening to your career-defining album pretty much nonstop. Ah! Let's drop a link in the show notes where people can order this album and or stream it. Yeah, guys, this is also a great time to go review the episode that I was on for my last album. Cindy interviewed me around my last album. And now everything has changed. Havsies is out. It's a whole new world of Lizzie Gnome music, and I'm so pumped about it. Yes, we have a a very exciting early beginning of the year for album releases because Lizzie's album came out, Britney Spencer's album. Britney Spencer! And this Friday, which is tomorrow, if you're keeping track, Sarah DeRosa's new album, Polaroid Lovers, comes out, and that is a wonderful record. It is so good. It is so fun. And of course, it's like also very like sophisticated and thoughtful and complex because it's Sarah Jarosz, but it's also just like there's bops on there. You're going to be tapping your toes. You're going to be feeling like whimsical and like thinking about your crush. (laughs) It's so cute and fun and special and beautiful. Yes. Oh, I love it. Well, let's talk about Sarah Jarosz. After this interview, Lizzie and I had, we were texting back and forth and we decided that Sarah DeRose is what happens when young women are taken seriously. So a huge part of the mandolinist story is that she had supportive male mentors when she was very young, and that has added to her confidence. You know, we all know the age-old story of young women shows promise, gets exploited by the patriarchy, and it affects her work. So we need to hear stories like Sarah's. Starting in her hometown of Wimberley, Texas, which is just 45 minutes outside of Austin, which we know is what? The live music capital of the world, y'all. Sarah found the mandolin at 10 years old 
Labeled a prodigy and thanks to the encouraging spirit of folk music, she found music mentorship with seasoned professionals like David Grisman, Ricky Skaggs, Tim O'Brien, and Bela Fleck. After her time at the New England Conservatory of Music, she moved to New York and would go on to collaborate with people like Chris Thiele in the Live From Here house band and her trio I'm With Her, featuring Aoife O'Donovan and Sarah Watkins, and won four Grammys. Not a big deal. Just like normal. And Sarah and Aoife are basic folk alumni. Is that correct, Cindy? That's right. We have the trifecta of the I'm With Her trio. Sarah moves from New York City to Nashville. And on her latest album, which is the very impressive and sonically expansive Polaroid Lovers, out tomorrow or today, depending on when you're listening, Jaros collaborated with the producer Daniel Tashian, which originally was just like a low-stakes co-writing project. The success of her first co-writing experience with Daniel led her to pursue other songwriting sessions with Rustin Kelly, Natalie Hemby. The collaboration found on the record has opened Sarah up to new sounds and new experiences. In our conversation, we talk about Sarah stepping into her own voice with confidence on this record and knowing her musical self enough at this point in her life. She describes her experience with confidence using the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you heard of this before, Lizzie? I like forgot what it was. Okay, I had not heard of it before, but don't you think, I mean, listeners, you can let us know. I feel like I really played it cool during the interview as if I knew what she was talking about. I <laughs> I'm was a like, psych minor. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, the Dunning-Kruger effect. I mean, of course I know what it is, but perhaps if you could explain for those who might not know. That was the vibe. (laughs) Here's what it is. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, it's when people with limited competence in a particular domain overestimate their abilities, aka fake it till you make it, aka leap and the net will appear. That's what we're talking about here. She also, so sweet, talks about her parents' influence on her early musicality and how her mom is doing after her cancer treatment and being in remission. An overall theme of this conversation is that Sarah never lost sight of her goal, keeping it all about the music and not letting the noise get in the way of your important work. She's an inspiration, I think, especially coming back to that topic of like, how can young women navigate this snake pit that is the music industry. (laughs) Keep it all about the work. Just keep it all about the work. Anything that's getting in the way of your work, push it to the side. I loved how Sarah talked about her focus and her like longevity. It's just super inspiring to hear somebody who has been through a lot and seen like a ton of success early on and, and like seeing how that person just keeps going and keeps it about the things that matter. Hmm. Well, the new album is Polaroid Lovers. And if you're listening on the day this episode is released, it is out tomorrow. Uh, Otherwise, it is out now. You should go listen to it. And then you should go listen to Lizzie No's new album. Let's take a listen to a song from the new record. Here's When the Lights Go Out. And then we'll get to our conversation with Sarah DeRose on Basic Folk. Who are you when the lights go out? You got me wondering. How'd you go from a face in the crowd to all of Jeros, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off with a question that you might not want to answer, which is totally fine. Um, Your last album, Blue Heron, was inspired by your mom's battle with cancer. It came out in 2021. And at the time it came out, you said she'd been in remission for three years. And after five, she'd be in the clear. So the question is, and you don't have to answer this, how is your mom doing? She's doing great, thankfully. Uh, She's still in remission. It has been more than five years now. Uh, You know, I think anyone who has dealt with cancer themselves or with a family member, um, even with the in the clear, there's sort of always a feeling of, and I know for her, for my mom especially, there 
is kind of always a feeling that it might come back that you're never Mm -hmm. like fully in the clear and but with that being said she just had a checkup a couple weeks ago and everything was great so very 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 thankful for that and um it's been you know obviously for my own personal uh, experience with it writing that music was very healing uh for for me for her uh for my family but even beyond that it's it was really amazing to me how many people you know just said that it, it moved them and that they related to it and that uh, you know obviously so many people have dealt with that in their lives and so you know that's like that's all I could ever hope for in, in terms of being a music creator uh, is mm-hmm. um, allowing people to sort of access like a deeper understanding of what it is to be human and what it is to be alive and, um, and to be connected to other people um, to, to be able to find that through music is sort of what I hope for. Oh, I love that. Your mom plays a big role in the genesis of your musicianship as well. Growing up, um, you've said that she would play guitar and sing and write her own songs. So it seems like she might be one of the reasons why, you know, you started writing your own songs and singing. How do you hear your mom in your own music and in the way that you approach being a musician? Hmm, that's that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's almost like I don't know myself without her, like without, without that, that influence, um, because it was just always there. And even when I was a baby, I mean, and my dad is a big part of it too. He's, he's a huge, I don't know if I've ever met anyone in my life who loves music as much as my dad. (laughs) I mean, he's just like the biggest music fan and is always, you know, discovering new things and playing was from the time that I was a baby like even when my mom was pregnant with me he was playing music on her stomach and and that sort of thing so in a way it's it's do you remember that I don't remember that (laughs) (laughs) um but you know once your body remembers my body exactly I, I and I do think there I in a recent show I was learning uh I decided to learn one of the songs that he said he played uh, on my mom's stomach, which is a Dan Fogelberg song called Song from Half Mountain, which is a gorgeous song. And actually, I do think it what, what you said, where it's like my body remembers it, the tonality of that song, it, I do feel like I write a lot in that tonality. So it's in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they're, they're both very influential uh, in terms of my musicality. And, and yeah, my mom, you know, when I was getting into mandolin and getting into music as, you know, in my, like around nine or 10 and in my early teens, especially, um, I remember seeing my mom's typewritten lyrics. Sometimes I would see them around the house. And, you know, when you're a kid, you just think, oh, well, this is normal, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like I didn't, think that it was any different um, to see that or to, to have that around the house. And so I think that's really why I tried to start writing my own songs was, was seeing through her example. I asked this question one time and it totally bombed, but my parents were also both teachers. So I'm really interested in what you have to say about this. Both of your parents are or were teachers. What impact do you think having teachers as parents had on you? Um. Well, I think especially my dad, because my mom taught pre-K kids, so so working with really little kids. And so I think she has like a real warmth about her that is very suited to to that. And so I think I was I have benefited from from that warmth. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then with my dad, he he mostly worked with um, seniors in high school. He was actually my teacher my senior year of high school, which I know for a lot of people would be like the most cringe thing of all time. But I think because it was, had it been my freshman year, I think it would have been an entirely different story and I would have been so embarrassed. But because it was my senior year at that point, I was like comfortable and confident and everybody loved him as a teacher. And so it was actually kind of cool for me to be able to just see what he did. But, you know, I think 
there's some discipline that comes with having parents as teachers. I think they were really, really intense and serious about my grades. And um, even, even when I started becoming really serious about music, they never let that go. Like they, it was always really important that I did well in school. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that looking back because I think it just allowed for at the time as, as rigorous as it might've been. Ultimately, I think it allowed me to be a more balanced person to not just have all of the emphasis beyond music all the time. And, you know, that carried into them really really being insistent that I go to to college and not just head straight out on the road. And, you know, I went to New England Conservatory, which is a music school. And we we would joke that NEC stands for not exactly college. (laughs) I've heard that, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Which is true. I can't wait to say that to my band member who's who graduated from NEC. Oh, nice. A little, just a little jab. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that, I think that discipline affected me and um, helped or just inevitably shaped me into the person that I am. But a pro of them both being teachers is that they had the summers off and that allowed, when I really did start getting serious about music, that allowed them to be able to help travel with me to, Mm. you know, camps and things. So that is just a very like lucky, fortunate thing. Cause I know a lot of people, when they're getting into music, they can't find the mean, they don't have the means or they don't have the actual, you know, travel ability to get to these camps or, or to get to these things. So that was something that was very lucky uh, in them being teachers. Yeah, the unsung heroes of the music industry are parents driving to the lessons and the camps. Yep. Woo! Yep. <laughs> um, so... You started on the piano at age six, but you were not super into it. And then you started mandolin at 10, and that really stuck for you. Um, that motivated you to learn and practice and put in the hours. So why, what do you think it was about the mandolin that just fit with you right away? I think it was, you know, some of it was timing. I think at six, I was not it wasn't that I wasn't into the piano. I think it was just, I wasn't ready to be disciplined with practice Mm -hmm. Um, because it was, I was always interested in music. I mean, even when I was six, you know, I was like listening to Leanne Rimes records and, you know, NSYNC. Well, maybe that was like right before NSYNC was maybe a couple of years later, but um, yes, it was, that was more like fourth grade. I think we're like similar ages. Yeah. It was like fifth, fourth, fifth grade. Exactly. Exactly. I went to, I got to see them when I was, I think I was 10. um, You saw NSYNC live? Lucky. When I was, I was in fifth grade and they played in San Antonio and Pink was the opener. And, um, yeah, I think I still have some confetti saved from that show. (laughs) That's incredible. But, um, yeah, I think there was just something about being, you know, the difference between six and 10 is huge in terms of like Mm -hmm. actually having the, the personal wherewithal to like show, show interest towards something that feels like your own and not something that Mm -hmm. someone else is making you do. And so that happened with the mandolin and it was kind of just a perfect storm of hearing recordings with mandolin in it. Specifically, the two bands that come to mind are the first was Hot Rise with Tim O'Brien and his incredible mandolin playing and singing, which caught my ear. I don't know how else to say it. It was my dad would just my dad would make these mixtapes my whole life and uh, like actual tapes like cassette tapes and you know go to the trouble of putting songs back to back on a cassette tape and there Colleen Malone was on one of those tapes and I think that was the first time I heard a mandolin there was just something about the tone and the ringiness of it that caught my ear before I even knew what it was or that it was a mandolin but it just kind of stuck with me and then I I grew up in the Catholic church. I grew up going to Catholic church and, um, around the same time. Well, it's funny because I've got my first mandolin through a woman at my church. So there was the best part of church was the music part, you know, and my mom and I were very active and in playing music every week. And one of the women there 
had a mandolin that she um she let me borrow because she I you know she saw that I was interested in it and probably from that Tim O'Brien recording so I played it and I just absolutely fell in love with it and then eventually my parents bought that mandolin from her for a Christmas gift and that became my first mandolin and it's funny because simultaneously we kind of stopped going to church because of a few reasons I mean I think my parents were kind of becoming disillusioned with it and realizing that they were doing it just because of tradition and that it's what they always did. And it wasn't really how they wanted to be spiritual in the world. And then also all the music things that I started going to were on Saturdays and Sundays. So it was kind of both of those things happening at the same time. And, but I'm grateful for it because it, it did lead me to my first mandolin yeah, and around that same time, I, I found out about a Friday Night Bluegrass Jam in my little town of Wimberley, and it just it just all came together. And the, the last thing I'll say is that um, that's also right around the time that Nickel Creek came out with their first album. And I mean, I know I'm not alone in, in that just being totally revelatory and important in terms of my obsession with the instrument, just because it was seeing young people playing these instruments and playing this Mm -hmm. more acoustic music was kind of like the spark that I needed to just become obsessed and want to get really good at it. You were raised in Wimberley, Texas, which is 45 minutes outside of Austin, the live music capital of the world. You started on mandolin at 10. And by 12, you were on stage with David Grisman and Ricky Skaggs. What has your relationship been to live performance since you started it at such a young age? And how do you think playing with such highly regarded and accoladed musicians at that young, impressionable age set you up as a performer? Well, first of all, I think there's something really special about um, the folk and bluegrass communities in that those really legendary players are even willing to share their time, their stage time with unknown musicians like myself. Um, You know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, it's also the nature of the music, you know, it's harder, I think with a really highly produced show with lights and and cues and stage marks to kind of fit someone into that. It -hmm. it, it has to be a big plan to have somebody sit into one of those shows. So the nice thing about folk and bluegrass is that it's mostly unplugged. Maybe you're singing around one mic. It's easier to have these impromptu moments. When I think back on a lot of those sit-ins in my early, early to mid teens, um, they were totally transformative. And I just feel really, grateful because there's just an openness like an open-heartedness in in those musicians you know like like you said David Grisman, Ricky Skaggs, I mean Tim O'Brien, Mike Marshall, uh, Bella Fleck, Jerry Douglas it you know I these are really high-powered musicians and they were so open and generous uh, to allow me to do that the thing I will say that I, I'm most appreciative when I think back on that time is they never made me feel like a kid, really, mm. in, in like the best way. They never kind of talked down to me or played down to me. I think that's really important. The bar was always really high. And um, I think that that's so important in music and music mentorship is to to kind of bring, as opposed to like playing down to the person that you're mentoring, like bringing them up to your level mm-hmm. and, and kind of like encouraging that, that rising. And that's, that's what all those people did. And I'm really grateful for that. And so it really set me up to be a performer on my own in, in many ways. And yeah. And I think I carry, I carry that with me still mm-hmm. to this day. Um, that that's those, those are lasting, lasting effects for sure. Good mentors are so important. Oh, it's everything. Especially for like young women. I feel like I am always on a soapbox talking about how women need mentorship and we deserve it and we don't get it nearly enough of the time. The other thing I think about (laughs) 
with mentorship is hurt people hurt people. Yeah. <laughs> when it yeah. comes to having not a good mentor. Yeah, no, that's, and the, those, those people are definitely out there. I think you have to kind of recognize when that's happening and remove mm-hmm. yourself from the situation as quickly as possible. Yeah. I know that's sometimes easier said than done. Um, but yeah, I, and you know, I, I think there, there were a couple, not really like individuals, but there were, there were a couple of maybe jam situations where I might've felt that or not felt included or not felt welcomed and, you know, don't waste your time, just move on yeah. and, and find, find the places that where people are lifting you up. Like I said, yeah. and, and obviously I realized that that's, that's not a given. And I, I feel very fortunate that I, um, that I had that privilege really, but, mm-hmm. but it, but it goes along with the working really hard thing too, because if, if people are going to create that, that space for you, like you, you also have to put in the work to meet them there. And so it, it kind of, those two things go hand in hand. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about your voice. Um, so you always sang and have always loved singing. And you said singing is an extension of yourself. You attended the New England Conservatory of Music, as you mentioned, as a major in contemporary voice improvisation, which is very cool. And on this new album, your voice sounds very full, like it's experienced its own evolution. How has your voice changed because of this album? Hmm. Well, thanks. That's cool. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, I mean, part of it is just time, just simple time passing and, and doing something for longer than I did for the album before. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the, maybe the most simple part of the evolution, but I think it's also, you know, through time coming to know myself and, and like the timbre of my voice better and being more comfortable in my own skin, you know? And, and I think when you're really young, you're almost and this, this is the same for playing an instrument or songwriting, but also for singing, you know, you're taking, you're absorbing so much. And so, you know, I was listening to all, all of these artists all the time. I still do, but especially when you're in your early teens, you're absorbing so much of that. And you're almost like not copying, but mimicking to learn. You know, I think that's Mm -hmm. that mimicking can be a great way to, to grow and learn and, so I think it just it just took a certain amount of time to find my own voice through that growth and through that absorption and singing like in a lot of different styles and hearing knowing that I would still be me even if I was doing a different style of music. I think mm. I think that's kind of a big thing with this record is that I don't think I could have explored in this way with my voice or with my songwriting even five years ago, I think there is, there is a level of like knowing my musical identity and knowing, um, knowing the sound of my voice, knowing my connection with, especially the octave mandolin, which I played most on most of the tracks on, on the new album. Um, and it's kind of like the thread throughout the album that keeps it me. I feel like I've really, that that instrument and my voice kind of go hand in hand and that's something that took took a while for me to to find and and figure out mm. i think I, I consider myself a multi-instrumentalist and you know i love playing mandolin guitar banjo but i do feel like i'm kind of at this point where i feel the most myself when i'm singing and playing octave mandolin and i can that can be by itself or with other people but as long as those two things are happening, it's me. And I know that I'm not going to get lost in whatever else is happening. And so I think that groundedness in that feeling and, and the knowledge of, of knowing myself well enough to, yeah, not get lost. And I think that allowed me to, to get to this record um, and to, to feel really confident in it. That answer blew my mind. And I'm feeling... <laughs> unexpectedly emotional about it 
sorry to take you on a t- on a tangent, but I think there is something really interesting in there about the fact that our voices are just another part of our body and certain instruments are going to go better with your particular vibe and that that can change over time. I think that's just like such a fascinating way to think about your affinity for a particular instrument. So ugh, I'm, I'm going to listen back to this one because that was <laughs> such a, a cool way to describe that. Oh, um, thanks. I want to talk about a tricky word and that word is prodigy because of being so talented and being like named as a prodigy when you were really young, how did you approach the possibility that you could be taken advantage of um, by people in the industry and that your talents and marketability and your youth might be exploited? Like how did you stay grounded and not get swallowed up by the commercial side of things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question. I think the, maybe the shortest answer, um, or like the, the most to the point answer is I, and this kind of goes for a lot of things, um, in my life, but it always comes back to the music. And I think whenever I would start to feel overwhelmed by the business side of things, especially, you know, at 16, I I signed my first deal when I was 16 which is kind of insane when I think back on it. Cause at 16, I was like, Oh yeah, like I'm so ready for this, but it's like, it just sounds, <laughs> it sounds so young. Like when I think back on it. Um, but yeah, music is the centering thing. And so it's like, you can sort of get caught up in all of the, the crazy, the contracts and the lawyers and the managers and the agents and, and all of that stuff. But as long as I was focused on the music I found uh, if if I was doing my my hardest work and just trying to make the music the best that it could be, that's what was in my control, and and I had mm-hmm. to sort of trust that that would put me in the places that I I wanted to be in, and mm. and actually like Peter Rowan uh, when I was I think I was like twelve at Rocky Grass um, it was one of the first times that I met him. He was teaching at the academy. He said the cream always rises, even if it takes a long time. And, and mm-hmm. I just, I think about that a lot when I'm feeling stuck in a rut with creatively or, you know, the music was always the thing that would just ground me and, and, and put me where I needed to be. With that being said, I, I just feel like I was really lucky to be surrounded with people that I trusted on my team, particularly I have to shout out to Gary Pachosa, who I made my first four records with. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot when I think back on that time, he was such a, a guiding, just like almost like a shaman, <laughs> like, like a guiding me through, through that time and like introducing me to, Ultimately, he introduced me to my first manager, to my first agent. He's the reason that I signed that first contract. Um, he had this very like familiar, first of all, his name is Gary, which is also my dad's name. So Aww. it was almost like he was this second, second dad figure in my work life. Dad. <laughs> yeah, work dad. Yeah, work dad. And I think a, a huge thing to answer your question is that I trusted him and my parents also really trusted him. Mm-hmm. I think he really took that trust very seriously. He happened to have two young daughters as well. They were, they're younger than me, but it just had this very like family feeling that felt mm-hmm. like a safe space to sort of head into the beginning of my career with. And, and it also felt very organic and, and not like, stage parenty it was just sort yeah. of like unfolding in in this way even though it did happen early on it unfolded in a in a in a good at a good pace so i'm really grateful to him when i think back on that time for had it had i been had, had i gotten caught up with some different people you know you see it all the time it's yeah. it's really easy to to lose to lose your way and and to lose sight of, of the music as the reason that we're here in the first place. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really cool to learn that Gary and you co-produced your first album. And I think your second album, all the first four albums, first four albums, which I think is such a boss 
move for on both of your mm-hmm. parts. You know, you're, Gary's like, I'm going to let an 18 year old co-produce yeah. an album with me. In thinking about that and in thinking about how you've been playing with high-level musicians for so long and your many musical accolades and accomplishments, what has been your experience and relationship with confidence? And then how did the process of creating Polaroid Lovers impact your confidence? Hmm. Well, I think I, I, I think about this a lot. I actually think something that could maybe describe my experience with confidence over the years is (laughs) the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, you know, this kind of scale that goes down and then, and then it just, it starts up here, it goes down and dips. And then for the rest of time, it keeps going up slowly and never goes back down again. But it's basically like the relation to time and experience and confidence and, so, you know, you start, like, I remember in my teens, I just had, I had so much confidence because I was working really hard and I was just like, yeah, you, when you're a teenager, you're, you're kind of invincible in, in a way. Cause you're just like, yeah, I, I'm awesome. Like, this is so cool. And I, I'm starting to get into this thing that I love and that, that I can express myself and it's so exciting and there's so much newness. And then you kind of go along and you meet more people and you hear more people and you're like, Oh, there's all these other people and they're so amazing. And, and it starts to dip a little bit, you know, and and your confidence Mm -hmm. can kind of sag because you think, well, I was the, you know, I was the hot stuff uh, last year. Like what, what's happening? You know, you know, I think, I think I have experienced that for sure. Um, But then it, if you just stay, stay steady with it, eventually the experience and the confidence starts to like go back up again. And I think that started to happen right before this record. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, like part of it was the pandemic. I think just the isolated nature of that time and, and kind of coming to a point where music was just something that I'd always done and it was always a given And then it was almost like I had to reach this point where it's like, no, I'm choosing this again. I'm, I'm, I'm not just on autopilot and it's not just going to keep happening. Like I have to actively Mm -hmm. choose to keep doing this because, because it's what I do and because it's what I love. And I think that kind of happened in 2022. Like the, the, I was writing for this record that entire year. And I just, I was like, you know what, I'm going to think about songwriting and, in a more serious way than I've ever thought about it before. And, and, uh, and yeah, I just, you know, and that goes, that's kind of hand in hand with the co-writing nature of this as well. Like to, to be in a room with other writers and not be afraid that my voice would get lost in those rooms. You know, I think I was, I was kind of closed off to co-writing in my, you know, 18, 19, those, those first couple records, because I was, I was still finding my voice. And so how could I, you know, how could I sit down in a room with other people and not get lost in the mix if I don't even know my own voice? So it's really sweet to be here like at present day and feel like, you know what, I, I have a much better sense, I think, of what I can bring to the table musically. And so there's nothing to be lost from sitting down with other, you know, amazing musicians and writers. There's only I'm only going to learn from that. I'm only going to grow from that. And so I think all of that sort of plays into my confidence at this point. You know, I mean, maybe I'm sure I, I mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect where it like goes up forever. I think more realistically, life is more like a roller coaster and these things kind of have ebbs and flows throughout time. And, you know, I, I imagine that that's probably going to be more, more the case, but um it's interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. Keep us posted. Please. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything that was surprising to you about the collaborative process since you'd been avoiding it for so long? You know, I think there's just, I don't know if it was, if anything was surprising really other than, you know, like I said, before, before getting really serious about, co-writing for this album, I had been pretty closed off to it. And so 
I wasn't totally sure what would come of it. So maybe maybe mm. the surprising thing was that I ended up with all these songs that felt like me. Whereas I wasn't sure if that was going to be the case. Like I really, mm. I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to really try this. I live in Nashville now. I'm going to meet with some writers who I've wanted to write with and whose music I really appreciate. But I didn't know if those things would actually produce songs that I myself wanted to sing. Like maybe, right. maybe it would produce a song that they would sing or somebody else would sing. And, and I was open to that, but yeah, I think the surprising thing is that like, 99% of the songs I wanted to sing and and it felt mm. like me so that was kind of a a cool outcome of that process should we talk about Nashville right now Cindy yeah Cindy and I have like we could ask you questions all day long but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm. We need to talk about Nashville. It's it's been three years since you moved from New York to Nashville. I just made the same move two weeks ago. Oh wow! Congratulations. Full disclosure: I'm asking for a friend, and the friend <laughs> is me. Um, do you feel like putting down roots here in Nashville has changed the way you relate to folk and Americana as genres? Like your understanding of what those genres are today and your role within them. Um, I guess if I'm being honest, I don't really think about genre when I'm creating. I, I, mm -hmm. and even like at all, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like that's for other people to, to decide. And, you know, I think I've gone through phases where I get frustrated, like I'll, I'll make something and I'll put it out and then somebody will label it as X and I'm right. like, well, it's not that like, but I, I've stopped caring. Like it's if 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 people want to include me under a certain umbrella, thank you. Like I'm I'm cool. all for it. Like that's <laughs> I'm not gonna and that's just sort of in line with my general feeling about music is that I don't I've never even when I was young, like I never wanted to to put walls up or to to put boundaries uh about what I could explore and and if anything, that's that's maybe been a refreshing thing since moving here is to find that there are other, I think a lot of people outside Nashville kind of characterize it or, or put it into this box that it's just one mm -hmm. thing. It's just country. It's just Americana. But there's so many different types of creators here. And it's, it's, it's just very, it's a very rich musical community. Um, and so... I think that's been surprising because maybe I even myself was sort of when I was living in New York, putting it into some sort of box that wasn't fair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in general, I try, especially when I'm actually in the writing process, I just try not to think about those things because I think it just kind of hin hinders or you're trying to like write for a certain purpose or a certain sound. Right. And it, you know, I, I won't say that I haven't done that in the past, but it just, it doesn't usually produce, it's not like connecting to what's genuine about you. And it's, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> oh, I totally get that. Yeah. This line really resonated with me. We we're talking about, it was a big step to reach out to your producer, Daniel, but in the end, it showed you how important it was to keep taking thoughtful chances and that you never want to play it safe and you always want to have that like element of being a little scared and and taking risks if you could dive a little deeper into how you approach your songwriting now with in terms of like how do i keep it risky like how do i how do i keep taking chances how do i keep pushing myself i don't know i think it's you know yeah it was definitely felt like I was taking a chance to reach out to Daniel because I I didn't know him first of all and, and to be to be clear when I reached out to him it was just on the co-writing front initially I didn't I didn't actually ask him to produce the record until like 6 months after we had been writing a lot very regularly and I was kind of like okay we have a vibe like he's mm -hmm. he has the right ears for this for what I'm going for but I think, yeah, it's, I just, I find that sometimes these things sort of just show themselves 
themselves naturally, um, like what, what the next step is to push myself into, um, out of my comfort zone. You know, sometimes that's more on the technical, like musical side of things and actually like, what if I mess around with the time signature of this? Or what if I mess around with the instrumentation or the form or, you know, like Blue Heron Suite was very much uh, pushing myself and a a challenge Mm -hmm. musically in that I had never written in a suite uh, form, like for a long, long form song cycle. And so that presented its own challenges. Um, So I think I'm just always kind of looking for the thing that's going to allow me to, to grow. And, and that's, that I'm, that's not going to be me just doing the same thing uh, again. And, and I think one of the moments that I knew that I wanted to work with Daniel is that he said at one point while we were writing, he was like, why would you just want to make the same record over and over again? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the whole point is that we're, we're exploring, and we're we're reaching deeper into you know into the creative well to search and to search our 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 inner lives other people's lives you know to be a good listener yeah sometimes that pushing myself and kind of getting into that quote unquote scared space comes from the musical side sometimes it comes from who I choose to collaborate with, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. like you said, with, with Daniel, that was even true with John Leventhal on World on the Ground. You know, I, Mm -hmm. he has been a musical hero for so long. And so to, to take the step to, to ask, you know, was, was a big step for me. And I think, you know, there's, there's some letting go in that asking as well. That's kind of freeing uh, because, the worst they could say is no. And so you have to just be okay with that, you know, but at least, at least you're asking and at least you're exploring. And thankfully in both the case of Leventhal and Daniel, I'm thrilled with, with the outcomes and it speaks to their openness and their, their deep creativity and musicality and, and, uh, and preserving room for me I think I think there's a lot of producers that they kind of have their thing and it's it's almost like a formula and they might not be listening so much (laughs) to to what what needs to be captured and so I think talk about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it's there's a lot of wisdom that has to be there to leave space uh for the thing that you're trying to capture Uh, and so that's so good um yeah yeah Mm -hmm. I felt that a lot with Daniel was was so awesome in that he like the the actual band members that we assembled for this album was all Daniel I mean he was like I Mm. this this is the band this is the studio this is the we you know like he was very like kind of classic producer in that sense but then once we were in the studio I was like I never felt um dampened or I never felt like I was being pushed out of the way to kind of achieve his thing it was always like here's you and what can we do to make this better and so yeah that was really really cool I think we got time for a couple more questions so I'm going to ask a question about joy Mm -hmm. and then Lizzie's going to get very personal oh okay I'm scared (laughs) Yeah, this is TMZ, actually. <laughs> totally. This is TMZ Lila's Basic Folk. This is the new yeah. name of the podcast. You said it was so joyful to work with all these writers and musicians, and I think that joy really comes through on this on this music. So why does joy matter to you right now, and what did recording this album teach you about how joy fits into your work as an artist? Mm. I mean, at the end of the day it's music. You know, I think it it can be really easy. That's so simple to say, but the world is so crazy that it can, you know, and we all get so zeroed in on what our thing is that it can be easy to lose sight sometimes that it is music. And, and that the, the point, the reason I listen to music is to 
feel comforted or to feel like to feel invigorated or um, to feel joy. I mean, simply, you know, it's, and so I think as, as a creator of music, I try to remember that, like, why are people coming to my shows? Why are people putting my record on? Like they're trying to probably escape something um, or, or, or if not escaping, they're trying to create joy in their lives. And, and so I think it's just, I'm thinking about that a lot. I'm thinking about it a lot with my tour coming up, you know, and, and like the type of live show that, that I hope can, can bring joy to people and, you know, an hour and a half to two hours of just escaping the world and, and, you know, having, having this joy and, and just a lightness, I think. And, and that goes hand, that joy and that lightness goes hand in hand with the heavier songs, you know, I think, and not like just exploring your emotions and feeling connected to your emotions. Like it's all tied together, you know, it's it, mm. joy and, you know, sadness are, you can't have one without the other in a way. So it's, yeah, that was maybe rambly, but it, it is, it is on my mind. <laughs> I think we, we're vibing with it. I think our listeners will too. Cool. Um, okay. Story time. Let's go back to my first time seeing you live. It was my 24th birthday. You came to Washington, D.C., I believe to the Lincoln Theater with the Milk Carton Kids. Yeah, wow. It was a spectacular show. And I asked Joey and Kenneth about it. Hi, guys. And they said something really interesting about that time, which is that aside from being huge fans of your music, they learned a lot like during that time about what it was like to be a woman performing music. Um, they noticed that people's reactions to you on social media were really different than the reactions they were getting, even though you were all on the same tour and that people tended to make comments about your appearance. And it was just like really eye-opening for them. And it's some, and they said it's something they've noticed they've not paid attention to with other, you know, female colleagues going forward. So I'm curious if you remember what it felt like to be so visible at such a young age and how you dealt with it then and then how does 2024 Sarah feel about it? And like, as you navigate public life as a woman, what do you wish your male colleagues knew? Uh, what do you wish they would do to show up for women? Hmm. Any or all of those are okay. fair game. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it's really interesting because it's interesting that they said that because that wasn't my experience of it at the time, actually. Mm. Like I was, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe you could say I was oblivious to that um, if, if it was sure. happening and it's, I'm not denying that, you know, they're, they're reading comments and, and seeing stuff. And that's, yeah, I think that's a nature of social media and, right. And being a woman on social media. Um, you and know. we get used to it as women. So I think sometimes a man seeing it, right. you know, they can have a different level of, you know, wow, this is, this is bad. For Isn't sure. it if a yeah. man sees it, it actually happens? <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess though it, it wasn't my, I don't remember being aware of that at the time. Um, mm -hmm. I, because I was just so psyched to be on the tour and to be, I just remember it, it, it might, I might start to sound like a broken record, but like in any times when these issues arise, um, whether I'm aware of them or not, like, I think as long as the music is the central focus, mm -hmm. then I'm not allowing that to get to me or to, or to affect my, to do the thing that it's trying to do, which is knock you down, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, if you can, and it, I know that it's easier said than done, but if you can have sort of a guiding force, whether it's music, whatever you do in your life that you feel passionate about, it doesn't have to be music, you know, if you can keep your focus on that and keep your eye on the prize, I don't think that there's just not as much room for those, that chatter, that outside chatter to, to knock you down or, or to, to get in the way. And, you know, I think, 
in a way, the thing that you're talking about, I was more aware of when I was much younger, um, when I was Mm -hmm. like 12 and 13 and going to a lot of these music camps for the first time. And I would often be the only girl. Yeah. And there was sometimes this sense of feeling like, okay, I have to be really good because that's the only way that I can hang, hang with these, with these guys and for them to accept, accept me and, you know, fit in. (laughs) Um, and yeah, that's, I think when I was more aware of it was that like early developmental stage of, of kind of being the only girl in the room. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then I just, it was like one foot in front of the other music first move forward And yeah, I think it's that in combination with also being fortunate to have many, many male collaborators um, who have been nothing but wonderful. I mean, like I, 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 maybe I am like unique (laughs) in that experience. And I know that a lot, you know, a lot of women don't, don't, can't say the same, but I really have just had great, great mentors. I mean, like, you know, Chris Thiele comes to mind. Um, Mm -hmm. Even those guys on that tour, the Milk Carton Kids, it was like, I was a part of it. Like I felt valued and I felt, you know, seen and and important and all of that stuff. And so more of that, like more people making, making people feel like that, that's the vibe. And, and like I said, yeah. And, and like I said, it's, it takes two, it takes, not only, you know, on the one side, people being respectful and, you know, supportive and, and like lifting people up, it also takes the work and the the hard drive to just, you know, it's like I was saying with the mentoring before, I was like rising, rising, like, like pushing yourself forward and, and keeping, keeping your eyes on, on your own goals and, and not letting the rest muddy the waters so to speak Hmm. oh thank you for answering like so transparently oh i'm i'm happy to all right let's do a very quick lightning round this is gonna be fun okay sarah juros here we go would you rather be able to fly or swim underwater without breathing much like a mermaid Hmm. that is a tough one that is so tough. I think swim. Do you have a favorite beauty or skincare product you would recommend? There's a company out of Brooklyn called Palermo that is mm-hmm. very small and like woman owned and they have all of their products are amazing, but they have a toner that's like this mist and it's just so delightful and I mm-hmm. I I can't go a day <laughs> without it. <laughs> oh I feel like that's what they call quiet luxury. Yeah. Sorry, lightning round. We need <laughs> another podcast episode where Sarah Jaros just tells us about her skincare regime. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me. That's so fun. I would love to. <laughs> this is a fun one. What do you want done with your body when you die? Whoa. Um, I think cremated. I, I don't know. It's I don't want to take up more space than, <laughs> you know, and, and be... <laughs> I think being scattered somewhere, somewhere special. Hmm. What's your favorite holiday? I think Thanksgiving because it's not quite as chaotic as Christmas. I don't know. It's just, it's about food. I love food. I love just sitting around a table connecting over food. What is your least favorite holiday? Uh, This is maybe controversial, but I don't know. Halloween, I could kind of take or leave Halloween. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. We get it. Hot take. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Final question. Imagine in your next life, you will be reincarnated as a non-human animal. Which animal are you choosing? That's easy. A blue heron. Oh. (laughs) Sarah. (laughs) Wow. Sarah DeRose, what a glorious miracle this new album is we love it so much thank you for taking the time to talk to us and congratulations like literally on everything thank you so much i really really love chatting this episode was produced by me cindy house basic folk is on the bluegrass situation podcast network you can find all of our episodes there 
wherever you get podcasts. You can check us out on the SiriusXM app by searching for Basic Folk, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. May I suggest that you share this episode with any child or young person in your life who is learning an instrument, showing an interest in creativity. This is a super inspiring one. So kids of any gender that are musical, they need to hear this. Send this episode to them. I don't think we swear in it. No, I think it's actually pretty kid-friendly. I think we're clean. Great. Hell yeah. Good on us. Thanks for (laughs) listening all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next time. We love you so much. Bye. Bye. Lilas.